The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 8 to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Okay, today we are in Judges, uh, let's see here, 7, it's verses 21 through 25. This is entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel, Part 7. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Bethacacia toward Zererah, as far as the border of Abel-Meolah, by Tabat. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize them from the watering places as far as Beth-barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth-barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. This sermon was typed on 11 December 2023. So far, Judges has detailed an amazing journey through much of redemptive history. It started and has led to when Israel will enter the tribulation period. That is made explicit in scripture, but it is also carefully detailed in typology. The reason Israel even exists as a nation is because God covenanted with them. Unlike the other nations of the earth, the Lord specifically stated that Israel will always remain before him as a people. This is grace. Israel has consistently violated the covenant the Lord made with them, and yet, because of his faithfulness, he has kept it as a nation. Israel will enter the tribulation period for exactly the same reason, because God has covenanted with them. Rather than destroying them along with much of the world, he will bring them through the tribulation, purify them, and they will again be his people. His attention and focus will be directly upon them and he will dwell among them. It's hard to see how people don't get this, but it completely escapes a large portion of the people in the church. And not all of them are dummies. 
Many have degrees, reading their Bible for their entire lives, but yet it escapes them. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 11. It is verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In today's passage, Zeb is one of the guys who will have his head taken off. I chose Isaiah 11:6 as our text verse because of that. Please trust that when the Lord promises something to Israel in the Old Testament, it means that the Lord will fulfill those promises to Israel. The promises are not abrogated through the work of Christ. They are not transferred to the church, and they are not taken away because of Israel's unfaithfulness. All of these are propositions set forth by various unsound doctrines, and yet none of them align with Scripture. Hold fast to the truth that God is faithful to His Word. If He is not for Israel, He will not be for you either. Where is there grace in that? Where is hope in that? Where is confidence in that? God's Word will never fail. Ever. Such great truths as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is Oreb and Zeb. It is verses 21 through 25. In the previous sermon, the narrative left off with Gideon and his 300 men coming to the outskirts of the camp, blowing their trumpets and breaking their pitchers. With that, they cried out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now this most magnificently marvelous action continues as the camp erupts into total chaos. Verse 21, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. The verbs being imperfect give the sense of ongoing action. And standing man his under around to the camp and running all the camp and shouting and fleeing. The meaning of his under is that the place where he stands does not change. The same ground remains under the standing man. One can see the contrast between the two camps. While Gideon and his men were standing firm, those in the camp were running. While he and his men were blasting the trumpets, those in the camp were shouting. While Gideon's company was shattering pitchers, those in the camp were fleeing. It is reminiscent of the chaos that took place at the Battle of Jericho. There was the blowing of trumpets and a great shout, the walls falling down, and then the rush of every man running straight ahead. Here, however, there was no rush by Gideon and his men. The chaos alone would bring about the enemy's destruction. The wording is so exact and so purposeful that the contrast is actually stunning when you put it side by side. Here, vaya amdu, vaya rats, and standing and running, vayitku, vayariu, and blasting and shouting, vayishbru, vayanesu, and shattering and fleeing. Hooray! Verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. Now, remember, these guys are just standing still. There's death all around, but these guys are standing still. They are not killing the enemy. The Lord is responsible for the victory. The words return to the narrative in verse 20. This isn't a second blasting of the trumpets, but a second description of the same action. Vayitku shlosh me'ot ha-shoforot, vayasem Yehovah et cherev. 
ish bereehu ubekal hamachane, and blasting three hundred in the shofars, and set Yehovah's sword, man in his friend, and in all the camp. Setting verses 20 and 22 side by side, the different aspects are more clearly seen. From verse 20, then blasting the three companions in the shofars and crying, sword to Jehovah and Gideon. And then verse 22, and blasting 300 in the shofars and set Jehovah's sword, man in his friend and in all the camp. So you can see the action that's going on. There is the call by Israel and then there is the response by the Lord. The scene is one of utter chaos. There was no light and no way to turn on a light. Every soldier's instinct was to fight his way out solely for the sake of self-preservation. Thus, everyone simply plunged his sword into whoever was nearest. Anyone who wasn't killed took off and headed for the hills. Or rather, verse 22 continues, and the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerera as far as the border of Abo Meholah by Tabat. Much more precisely, Vayanas Hamachane Ad Bet Hashita Tserata Ad Sefat Avel Mechola Al Tabat, and fled the camp until Bet Hashita Tserat Ward until Lip Abel Mechola upon Tabat. Those who could flee put their tails between their legs and took off. The movement of the flight became united, and the camp rushed towards these named places. Beit HaShita means house the acacias. The shita or acacia comes from shotet, a scourge because of the scourging thorns. Tzerera, or as it says actually in the Hebrew, tzererat, or zerera in the English is found only here in scripture. It is debated where the root comes from. Three possibilities are the word tsar, a hard pebble, or a flint or an unused root meaning to pierce or puncture, or a word meaning bound. Abarim says, to a Hebrew audience, it would probably have sounded like bound. The word sarar occurs with that precise meaning in Exodus 12:34. Abel mehola means meadow of dancing or stream of dancing. Tabat means extension, renowned, or perpetual. Verse 23, and the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Rather, it says, Vayitza'ak ish Yisrael min Naphtali, umin Asher, umin Kal Manasseh, Vayirdfu Achare Midian, and cried, Man Israel, from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and pursued after Midian. The meaning is, now that the advantage has been gained, a general cry of alarm went out for the men of these tribes to come and to assist in battle. The people responded, and Israel chased Midian. It is the same groups, minus Zebulun, who are called in Judges 6. Now, before I read this, why would it be minus Zebulun? My friend in Ireland emailed, and he said, do you have any idea why? Well, we'll see that later in the explanation, but that's the kind of thing you want to pay attention to. Why is it mentioned here and not here? Anyway, here we go. Judges 6.35. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher. Here it is. Zebulun and Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. Therefore, it may be that these men had been dismissed from the battle, but had simply not left yet, waiting to watch what happened. It said they returned to their tents in verse 7.8. So that is likely. As for Zebulun, 
Their tribal inheritance was not far away, and so they may have just headed home due to its close proximity. Even if Zebulun had people represented, it may simply be that their name, Glorious Dwelling Place, does not fit the typology, and so they are omitted from the narrative. And that's probably the case, but there is an explanation as to why it's actually not in there. Naphtali means my wrestlings. Asher means happy or blessed. Manasseh means to forget or from a debt. Verse 24. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim. Umalachim shalach Gidon bekalhar Ephraim. And messengers sent Gideon in all Mount Ephraim. Until this point, there was no call for Gideon to join in the battle. However, with the enemy fleeing, there was a need for them to be cut off as they fled. Saying Mount Ephraim either indicates the mountains of Ephraim in general or the name Mount Ephraim stands for the tribe. The name Ephraim means twice fruitful and ashes. As for the call, the messengers were, verse 24 continues, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Bet-Barah and the Jordan. Lemor, Rdu likrat midyan ve lichtu lahem et hamaim ad bet bara ve et ha yarden. To say, descend to meet Midian and seize to them the waters until Beth bara and the Jordan. The meaning of the waters is unsure. Charles Ellicott thinks it is the watershed of the hills of Ephraim unto the Jordan. All the way over there. Some think it is a wadi that flows into the Jordan. It could mean that it is saying something like the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. No matter what, Beth Barah is only mentioned twice in scripture. Both times are in this verse. Some believe it is the same as Beth Abara found in John 1.28. Abarim states the following about it. To a Hebrew audience, the name Beth Barah would have meant something like house of cleanness or house of food or even house of covenant making. Still, for a meaning of the name Beth Barah, both N-O-B-S-E, study, Bible, name, list, and Jones's Dictionary of Old Testament Proper Names read Place of the Ford. BDB Theological Dictionary offers its signature prudent question mark and the equation with the imaginary name uh, Beth Abara, which BDB translates with place of Ford. Anyway, the Jordan means the descender. Verse 24 continues, Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. The words confirm Ephraim's response to the call. Va yitzaek kal ish Ephraim, va yuktu et hayamim, ha yamim, et bet bara, va et hayarden, and cried, All man Ephraim, and seized the waters until bet bara and the Jordan. Verse 25 And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. Va yuktu shene sare midian, et Oreb ve et zaev and seized two princes Midian, Oreb, and Zeev. As there is no article before the word princes, it signifies that there are other leaders of Midian. They will be identified in chapter 8, but these two are singled out here in the narrative as they face their demise. Oreb signifies a raven, Orev, coming from the same root as Erev, meaning evening. The connection to darkness is obvious. That comes from Arav, to become dark, and that is identical to Arav, to give or take in pledge. 
Oreb means raven. The main idea associated with ravens in scripture, apart from their obvious dark color, is that of eating. Ze'eb means wolf, coming from an unused root meaning to be yellow. Now you know why I chose that text verse. As for the wolf in scripture, it is a devourer and a scatterer, at least at this time. During the millennium, such will no longer be the case as we saw in Isaiah 11.6 and also in Isaiah 65.25. Verse 25 continues, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Vehargu et Orev betsur Orev, veet Zaev hargu beyakev Zaev, and killed Oreb in rock Oreb, and Zeb killed in wine vat Zeb. The names are derived from the event. There doesn't seem to be any need to say that these guys were seized taken somewhere else, and killed. Rather, by saying they were killed in the rock and in the wine vat, it appears that they were hiding in those places. They were seized, and they were killed. Lastly, we read the following. Verse 25 finishes with, They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Ve'yirdfu el Midian ve'rosh Oreb uza'ev heviru el Gidon me'ever la yarden and pursued unto Midian, and head Oreb and Zeb brought unto Gideon from side to the Jordan. This would explain why they cut their heads off. The men found them, executed them, and continued to pursue the enemy unto the land of Midian, which is across the Jordan, starting down around the area of the Dead Sea. Carrying heads would be much less cumbersome than dead bodies. The heads would be sufficient to confirm that they had died in battle. Once they completed their campaign, they then returned from that side of the Jordan to where Gideon was. Who is fearful and afraid? Whose heart is failing at the sight? The word of the Lord has not been obeyed. He asks you to trust, no matter what the plight. Let us trust in this and go forward confidently that our destiny is secure through what he has done. Innumerable people gathered around the glassy sea, forgiven and redeemed through the work of the sun. The forces arrayed against us will all be swept away. Through our faith in Jesus, we are again right with God. Oh, glorious day. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Judges 7 continues the pattern of showing the inferiority of the law and its inability to save. Rather, it is a detriment to a right and proper relationship with God. Obviously, the law was given to Israel as a means of establishing a relationship between the Lord and his people. However, that was only so far as it pointed to their need for the coming of the Messiah. Ultimately, the law never brought Israel into a proper relationship with the Lord. Rather, it only highlights sin in fallen man, and it highlighted it all through the era of Israel's history. The account in Judges 7 once again typologically points to the great work of Jesus Christ fulfilling the law and bringing about restoration through his completed work. Verse 1 began by naming Jerubbaal, let Baal strive. It is Jesus who strove against the law and he prevailed. By stating the name in this manner right at the outset, it gives prominence to this point. It is from that starting point that the narrative then continues. It immediately identified Jerubal as Gideon, cutter. Gideon comes from Gadah to cut off. 
as was previously seen, just as Deborah anticipated the New Testament coming from diatheke, a covenant or testament, which is a feminine noun, Gideon anticipates the euagelion, or the gospel, meaning the good news. As noted, Jesus is the one who strove with the law. Jesus is also the ultimate meaning behind the gospel. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He, meaning his work, which defines him as the Messiah, is the gospel. Jerubbaal, Gideon, and those with him then encamped above the spring Harad, meaning trembling. Their location meant that the camp of Midian, the place of judgment, was north of them by the hill More. The north, Safon, is the hidden side because the north receives less light in the northern hemisphere during the fall and winter. As we have seen, the hill, the Giva, finds its typological fulfillment in Gabatha, being etymologically connected to it. It is where Jesus placed himself under the rule of Rome, submitting to their authority, which led to his cross. Hill the More has a dual meaning, Hill the teacher and Hill the early reign. Christ is the teacher of God's law as well as the fulfiller of it. The significance is that the law is hidden in him so that he has authority in the place of judgment. Along with this is Hill of the early reign. As was seen in part five, James ties the coming of the early and latter rains to the coming of the Lord. Thus, this passage is anticipating events yet ahead in the redemptive narrative when the Lord returns to judge the world. We're sitting here in 2024 and these things haven't happened yet. It's showing us something that's coming in the future. Verse two mentions that there were too many men that had come for battle. Thus, the number needed to be pared down lest Israel assume that they had won the battle. Therefore, those who were fearful and trembling were told to depart. The word translated as trembling was the source of naming it Spring Harod. Those who were trembly were told while using a jusuf, which is a sort of indirect command, he shall depart and flit from Mount Gilead. Mount Gilead, Har Gilad, signifies a large but centralized group of people, Har, of the perpetual fountain. Gilead has consistently represented the eternal presence of the Spirit. This is perfectly reflected in the words of Hebrews 10 concerning those who are not of faith and who turn back. Hebrews 10, 37 and 38, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Remembering that Hebrews is an epistle especially directed to the end times Jews after the church age, the symbolism is perfectly clear. The use of the Joseph is an indirect command. If you are not of faith, you shall depart and flit from the perpetual fountain. The next words of verse Hebrew 10 give a sense of their state. The author is speaking to believers, but then contrasts it with unbelievers. Hebrews 10, 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Remember, these people were scared. Anybody scared? Go back. Well, that's being pictured in those people that are being described in Hebrews 10. Hope you got that. Interestingly, the number who are not of faith are said to be 22,000. That is roughly two-thirds of the number of men prepared for battle. 
Without being dogmatic on this, it certainly appears that this is pointing to the Jews who will perish without the perpetual fountain during the tribulation period. It says in Zechariah 13, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one third shall be left in it. I will bring the one third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Of those that remained, verses 3 and 4, the Lord noted that there were still too many for the battle. Thus, they were to go down to the water and be refined. It is the same word, tsaraf, just used to describe those who are refined in Zechariah 13, verse 9. Verse 5 brought in the interesting words about lapping like a dog. Unlike every other commentary on this verse, I explained that the focus is not on how the lapping is conducted, but on which animal did the lapping, the dog. The dog consistently anticipates Gentiles in Scripture. All the way from Genesis up until this point, it has been consistent. Those who are like the Gentiles during the church age will lap up the water, meaning the word, Christ, the Spirit, and so forth, meaning by faith. They are those who will engage in the battle. Those others who crouched were to be excluded. The excluded ones anticipate those who have not departed, but they are not those who are fully committed. Unlike the Gentiles and those like them, these may be further refined, but they will not engage in the battle. As a side note, if you have restrained from owning a dog to this point in your life, you must by now see every reason to go adopt one or ten. Verses 6 and 7 noted that 300 men lapped water and that they would save Gideon and prevail over Midian. 300 is a multiple of 3 and 10. 10 signifies that nothing is wanting and that the whole cycle is complete. 3 signifies divine perfection, but more. As noted by Bollinger, he says of the number 3, the number 3 therefore must be taken as the number of divine fullness. It signifies and represents the Holy Spirit as taking of the things of Christ and making them real and solid in our experience. It is only by the Spirit that we realize spiritual things. Without Him and His gracious operation, all is surface work. All is what a plain figure is to a solid. The numbers perfectly fit with what one would expect in the final spiritual battle being played out during the tribulation period. But more, the Greek letter tall, a cross, is represented by the number 300. It is a clear New Testament note that Christ's cross, which is the basis of the gospel, is what is being pictured right here with these 300 men. From the cross comes salvation and prevailing over the place of judgment, Midian. The gospel, Gideon, and the 300, the cross, Christ's work, will win this battle. Remember that the odds between the two sides were 450 to 1. The number is derived from 5, 9, and 10. 5 is the number of grace. 9 is the number of finality or judgment. 10 signifies that nothing is wanting and the whole cycle is complete. It is a perfect match to what will transpire. Verses 9 and 10 noted the victory was won, but if Gideon wasn't convinced, he should go down with Pura, his servant. Pura means either fruitful or branch, but in the sense of honor, beauty, glory, and so forth. 
Actually, either definition can reflect what the New Testament says about the gospel. It is both fruitful, that's Romans 7, 4, and so on, and it is glorious, as is noted in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and so on. The close etymological connection between the words is probably purposeful. It asks us to consider both the fruitfulness and the glory of the gospel's effects in the end times. Once Gideon and his troops were near the camp, it made a note about Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east lying in the valley. Midian, place of judgment, is the main force. It speaks of the tribulation period that Israel will someday endure. Amalek, the people who ring off, are those disconnected from the body, meaning the body among whom God is present and who strive to disconnect the body. The Bene Kedem, or sons east, signifies those who continue to cling to the law annulled in the past through Christ's work, simply because they cannot let go of it. That will be seen in an upcoming sermon, okay? So just remember that. Being as numerous as locusts mean that they seemed endless in number. This is then set in contrast to the cross and the gospel. There is an actual battle which lies ahead for Israel. We call it the tribulation period, and it's going to be an actual battle. But there is a spiritual battle that must be won for them to prevail as well. Also, the number of camels was noted as being an incredible number, even beyond counting. The word comes from the verb gamal, to deal fully or adequately with. Thus, it can mean to wean, repay, require, reward, ripen, and so forth. It speaks of the treatment of the world that it will receive due to its rejection of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 detailed the dream of the man in the camp of Midian. A round loaf or a cake of barley bread turned through the camp of Midian, destroying it. As noted, barley is the lesser or more inconsequential grain. It is also the grain as I noted last week, of hairy ears. Hair signifies an awareness, especially that of sin. The gospel is considered as inconsequential to those who do not accept it. It is also that which properly identifies and deals with the awareness of sin. The law only highlights sin, but apart from Christ, it cannot deal with it. The connection of the word hafak, turn, between the turning of the barley bread and the turning of the sword, cherev, meaning the law, in Genesis 3.24 was noted last week, and it is not without significance. The law is what keeps man from returning to fellowship with God. The gospel is what terminates the law and allows man to return to that marvelous state. It said in Genesis 3.24, so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, ha-chereb, the sword, think of the law, which turned, ha-mith-ha-pechet, the turning. It's the exact same word in the exact same construct that is found here in this Gideon sermon. Every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is it that brings us back to restoration with God? The body of Jesus Christ. Remember, he died on the cross, and the veil was rent access was restored. The law is annulled in Christ. It's all being seen right here. Verse 14 directly equated the turning barley bread, zot bilti, this except, to the cherev, the sword of Gideon. Again, it is a perfect representation of Christ's fulfillment of the law, which establishes the gospel. Gideon, think of Genesis 3.24. Think of the work of Christ. Consider the marvel of what is being pictured right here in these verses. Think of those who reject the gospel. They will be destroyed through their rejection of the gospel. It's all about Jesus. 
Verse 15, a marvelous verse, includes anyone who is dissecting the typology of this passage right in its words. And was according to hearing Gideon account the dream and its fracture, and he worshiped. The word shavar, we talked about it last week, signifies a breaking, a fracture, a crushing, and so forth. In this case, the dream was given, but its meaning was closed up. We have been included in the telling of the dream. However, the other man was able to cause a fracture in the words, thus exposing the meaning. Hence, it signifies a solution or an interpretation of the dream. But as we have seen, the dream has more than the surface meaning. Therefore, we are included in the fracture of the dream. Someday Israel will pay heed and they too will understand what is being said in these verses right here. Verse 16 noted the shofars, the pitchers and the torches. The shofar is for the call to battle. The pitchers normally used for water were to conceal the torches. The torches were to reveal the light. The three could not be more exactingly described than what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen and think about this passage from Judges and those three implements. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, the blowing of the shofar, the proclamation of the gospel, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the torches. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Think of the pictures, the earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The three implements are the proclamation of the gospel being revealed to the people of the world. In Gideon, the gospel and his 300, think of Christ, think of the cross, deploying these three things, the enemy will find its destruction. Now remember, there's a real battle going on in the world, but there's also the necessity for Israel to prevail in the spiritual battle. Until they do, Christ isn't returning. It's all happening in the stream of time, but it's also happening in the spiritual realm. At the time they are employed, it says in verse 19 that it was head, the watch, the middle. It would have been at the time that Midian was least prepared for such a battle. This clearly speaks of the world during the tribulation period. The division into three companies, which was stated several times, refers to the divine perfection of the event and the divine fullness of the spirit in causing the work of Christ to be realized as noted by Bollinger earlier. As for the employment of the shofars and torches, it was specific. And strengthened in hand left in the torches, and in hand their right, the shofars, to blowing. It could have simply said they held the torches and blew the trumpets, but it didn't. It was very specific. It didn't in order to specifically reveal typology. The left side refers to the north, or darker side in scripture. The word simol, or left, comes from simla, a wrapper, or a mantle. Hence, the left is the hidden side, like it's wrapped up. It is like saying, and strengthened in the hidden hand, the torches. Thus, the focus is on the torches. The left hand pictures Christ in his humanity, covering his deity. We see the human, but he is divine. Everybody see that? The light of the gospel is seen in the person of Christ. 
as noted earlier, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ is hiding his deity. Everybody got that? The right is the position of power. The blasting of the shofar, the heralding of the gospel is what is seen. With that also came the cry, sword to Jehovah and to Gideon. The meaning of two, as I said last week, is of. The call is of the Lord's sword, meaning the fulfillment of the law by Christ and the gospel. The two are united as one, just as 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 proclaims. Verse 21, which opened our verses today, showed the contrast between the army of Gideon and that of Midian, and standing, and running, and blasting, and shouting, and shattering, and fleeing. Despite the seeming odds, with the Lord behind the gospel, the world cannot prevail, but will find absolute defeat, even to the point where it will destroy itself. This is seen in Jehovah's setting a sword, a cherev, the law, between a man and his friend within the camp. Without Jesus, the law can only bring death. As for the names of these locations that they fled to, each of them is either used only once or this is the first time that they are seen in Scripture. Therefore, it is probable that they were named based on the events. Thus, in an attempt to explain typology, I submit this. House of Acacias, meaning house of scourges, describes the effects rendered upon the enemy. Towards Zerirah, bound, signifies the coming state of those who reject the gospel. At the final judgment, they will be bound forever in the lake of fire. The border of meadow or stream of dancing signifies the state of those who are victorious in the battle. Dances are used to describe joy, most often after a battle. Being by Tabat, meaning perpetual, is the eternal state where either side will find itself. Verse 23 mentioned the crying out and pursuing of Israel. He strives with God. By Naphtali, my wrestlings and signifying the work of Christ to secure salvation. Asher, blessed because of the work of Christ. And Manasseh, to forget from a debt signifying Christ who forgives sins, having paid their sin debt. These went forth pursuing Midian, place of judgment, having been declared not guilty because of Christ. As we saw, Zebulun was notably missing. Those of Israel who survived the tribulation period will enter into the millennium. They will not be translated directly to heaven. Everybody see that? Remember, Zebulun was a picture of the rapture in the past, or it's the glorious dwelling place, heaven. They're not going there. They're going to enter the millennium, and that's explicit in the book of Revelation. Verse 24 detailed the call of Ephraim, twice fruitful ashes. It speaks of the continued salvation of both Jews and Gentiles during the tribulation because of the afflictions of Christ. They pursued Midian until Beth Barah, house of the covenant, and the Jordan, meaning the descender. Whether this is referring to the negative effects of Midian rejecting Christ or the positive effects of Israel accepting Christ, the result is the same. There is one new covenant and there is one Jesus. Those who are in him will be saved, and those who reject him, I'm sorry for people that believe that you can be saved any other way, they will be lost. As it is Israel seizing the waters, I would go with the latter. It speaks of the coming destruction of all who reject Jesus. That would follow with the words of verse 25. 
The two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, were captured and killed. Being two, they provide a contrast, and yet they provide a confirmation. Anytime you see two things in Scripture, there's a contrast and yet a confirmation. You've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament. They contrast law and grace, but they confirm the totality of the Word of God, etc. Anytime you see two, there will always be that premise, okay? Being two, they provide this contrast and this confirmation. Oreb, raven, ultimately comes from Arav. To take and pledge. Ze'ev, wolf, signifies those who devour. It speaks of those who have tried to obtain the pledge of the Spirit without Christ and those who devour the flock. They contrast, and yet they confirm the totality of those who are separated from God. These were able to overcome such through their faith in Christ, just as Revelation says will come about. Being killed at the Rock of Oreb is set in contrast to having life in the Rock of Christ. One is a false hope, the other is a true hope. Being killed at the wine press of Ze'ev also provides a contrast. There is the overflowing vat given by the Lord, for example in Proverbs 3, or the vat of punishment for rejecting him, which is found in Joel 3 verse 13. The final words of the chapter noted the heads being carried back to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. It is a note of the victory over these two as seen elsewhere in Scripture. The enemy is defeated and the battle is complete. Judges 7 is not the end of Gideon's time as the judge of Israel. Chapter 8 is long, and it is very detailed. But Judges 7 is an integral part of what is typologically anticipated in the future. In studying and understanding typology, many errors in theology, such as Israel's covenant relationship with God, are cleared up. The Lord's promises to Israel are absolutely sure to come about. This includes being brought into the new covenant and enjoying all the blessings and privileges promised to them in their prophets. That time is ahead, but probably not too far ahead. The world is primed for self-destruction, but what good is knowing this if the word cannot be trusted? If God's word is not eternal and decided once and for all time, then there is absolutely no point at all, none, zero, zip, nada, in trusting him or bothering with his word. Why would you read a word knowing that it wasn't trustworthy? Why would you do that? There's no point in it. What a sad state to be in. Jesus saved me. Hooray! But he might take it back. Therefore, my salvation is up to me. That is where Israel is right now. They don't trust the Lord and they don't trust his word. Thus, they are stuck in a place where there is no faith, no hope, and no confidence except in themselves. Let us learn the lesson of Scripture by understanding the lesson of Israel. God has been and he will be faithful to his unfaithful people. That includes you, by the way. Look to Israel and be confident that he will, not maybe, he will carry you through to a good end. Israel is going to enter the millennium. They will be set as the head of the nations, and I don't care what a single person on this planet says contrary to that. They're wrong. God's word will be vindicated. It says it, it's going to happen. These people that say, oh, the church has replaced them and they're out, they don't know the meaning of the word grace. They don't understand the nature of God who is eternal. And when he makes a decree, it is going to come to pass. Thank God for his faithfulness in the giving of his son. Yes, thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, that is it. Amen and amen. That is it. It's all being pictured here. It's all being typologically anticipated. It's a lot of information. I took a whole bunch of 
verses over the past three weeks and crammed them into one short explanation, but it's all right there. God is telling us in advance that he is going to be faithful to Israel right through to the end, and he is just as faithful to you as he is to them. Probably more so, and I shouldn't say it in the sense of a comparison, but he is covenanted in the blood of his son in the new covenant. And so I say it's all the more binding, all the more binding. When he says, come to me and I will give you rest and come to me and you will be saved and come to me and I promise you eternal life, it doesn't mean maybe and it doesn't mean after you prove the rest of your life to be faithful. That doesn't mean any of those things. It means that Jesus Christ has done it. And everything after that point is still up to him. All he asks you to do is just be obedient in the process. And if you're not, you're going to stand before him and you're going to regret the years you wasted and the life you wasted, not living up to the agreement that he has covenanted with you. Please be faithful to this wonderful God who was so faithful to you. You didn't deserve salvation. All you deserved was being chucked into hell. That's all you and I deserve. And yet he saved us out of that because of his mercy and his love towards us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Go back into the the verses today, and here's the gospel. I want everybody that listened to hear it one more time in case somebody here is not called on Jesus. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, dot, dot, dot. I'm skipping a couple words. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. That's all that God wants you to do is to accept that premise I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus did it all because Jesus is the Lord God incarnate. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Please call on him today. Okay, here's the other verse where the wolf is mentioned. Isaiah 65, 25 is our closing verse today. The wolf, that's one of those guys that was against Israel. Guess what happens in the millennium? And the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. He doesn't get any restoration. All the rest of the world is getting restored, but the serpent and his curse goes on. He shall eat the dust. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What a great God. That is actually going to happen. That's not just some metaphorical thing that the Lord was telling us so we can say that's, you know, that's picturing the church and our going out and evangelizing Papua New Guinea. That is not what that's speaking of. It's saying that this world will be in a state of perfection and it will be under the authority of the Lord coming from the nation of Israel. That is what that means. Next week, thank God for Jesus, huh? And his faithfulness. Next week is Judges 8, 1 through 12. More battling to be done. So the word does tell, but the outcome will be great. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part eight. Thank you, Jay. He wasn't sure if I had more to say or not. That'll be our 25th judge's sermon. He got it. He's looking at me and he's thinking, is he going to say any more? I don't want to cut him off. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, drum roll. Okay, we got a poem and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. But I've got a question. Um, oh, Guess what? This is part two of this. Remember, I got these uh, two for one last week. So this is part two. Now, make sure you raise your hand. Okay, this is very easy. It came from your cards. Okay, um, uh, you're going to have to think about it. It is easy, but you're going to have to think about it because there's a lot of things going on in this chapter. Who did Jesus see under the fig tree in John 1? 
Uh, he got it. Hand up and the name. He did both. Hey, because last week he did one and not the other. Okay. Good job. That, as a matter of fact, I heard somebody else over here. I, didn't, I, I saw no hand come up. Did a hand come up? Did a hand come up? Okay, I didn't. I, I heard the call, but not the hand. And so I was directing my eyes at the hand and the call. So if not, I would have just cut it in half and thrown each of you half. Good job, Bert. I, you know, I, I got to tell you something. I felt so bad last week because he got it right. But all week long, I've actually been sad. And I've been saying, I hope Bert gets it. I hope Bert gets it. Because I want you to have your sausage, buddy. Okay, I'll put this right here. I'll put it over here. That way you can take your communion without being interrupted by sausage. And maybe I can snag it back, too. So. Okay, we got something new next week, which you can plan for. I think this was also from Kate, was it? Uh, that came, okay, this is Kate, and this is going to be next week. This is big. This is jumbo size, so get ready. Practice your Bible over the week so you can get this. This is Walnut Creek Apple Butter. Oh, oh, uh, let's see if we have anything. Uh, apples, sugar, apple, juice concentrate, cinnamon, citric acid, salt, and spices. And it's got all the nutrition facts. If you want to read them to see if you want to participate or not, you can. Um, no taking it. That stays here, though. You can pick it up and read the... Uh, okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, poem will be done. Uh, Gideon, Judge of Israel, Part 7. And every man all around the camp in his place stood. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled, Sayonara for good. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. Felicity was shot. And the army fled to Bethacacia towards Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Beth Meholah by Tabat. And the men of Israel gathered together, not just to see the sights, from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places, as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan, so he was conveying. And all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan, doing as Gideon pleased. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at Zeb's winepress. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan to show off their success. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how gracious, how grateful we are for your gracious hand upon us. How grateful we are that you have been faithful to Israel, setting the pattern so that we know that you will be faithful to us even in our own unfaithfulness. And yes, Lord, we admit that we're unfaithful before you. We have sinned as a people. We have sinned as individuals. We have sinned as nations. And yet you are willing to forgive when we just humble ourselves and come to you. Lord, help us to be responsible with our lives and our actions and to humble ourselves, to believe the gospel, to accept the fact that we cannot save ourselves, but you have done so for us if we will just come to Jesus. Thank you for that wonderful offer. May many accept it in the days and weeks ahead until whenever you come for your people. Lord, we thank you. 
We thank you for the promise that we have of eternal life in Christ. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.